was back in chapter 16 of the book of Acts that Luke uh, recorded Paul's ministry shift uh, in the sense that he started stopped reporting it in the third person, speaking of they, them, and us. This sounds like traditional pronouns, doesn't it? To uh, me, we, and I. <laughs> but unlike his gospel, what we find is his accounts weren't based, as he said in Luke 1, upon things that were handed down to us by eyewitnesses, but rather he could say very clearly that these were not cleverly invented stories, as P Peter attested, but he says, I was an eyewitness of these events. All that to say that Luke is so notable in the New Testament for a lot of reasons. One is, first of all, that he's the only non-Jewish writer of the entire Bible. There's not another book of the Bible that's written by a non-Jew, except the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And secondly, he's the most prolific writer of the New Testament. There, he put more words on paper than even the Apostle Paul did. He is also much of a, more like a modern historian when we think of history, because he goes to copious details about the people, the times, the places, the events. He recounts Paul's interactions with some of the most powerful men in the world at that time. You know, in our day and age, we have celebrities. In their day and age, they had politicians. And basically, to get no, close to these or involved with these people was a very unique and special circumstance. And so if you go all the way back to chapter 22 where he's arrested, he's preaching to the entirety of the gathered Jews that are in the temple. In chapter 23, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. It'd be like bringing, being brought before the January 6th committee uh, in Washington, D.C., um, in chapter 24, we read where he was brought before Felix. In chapter 25, he stands before another governor, Portius Festus. In chapter 26, he's standing before King Agrippa II and his sister and also lover, Bernice. And then there was in chapter 27 where he's brought before the Roman emperor, uh, Nero at the time, and also his aides were Seneca and Burrus, two of the most famous men of Latin history. And in fact, we find by Paul's own statements in a letter to the Philippians that he actually was in interacting with the whole palace guard, which was called the Praetorian Guard. They were the really the most important military unit in the whole empire. And along with them, he's talking to the household servants. In fact, in Philippians 1-2, he says, it became clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And later on in chapter 4, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So not only did Paul suffer for my name, as the scripture said he would, but as was foretold in chapter 9, when he first came to Christ, that he would carry his name before the Gentiles, their kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Now, that may have gone by you rather quickly, but if you had lived in that moment or you had first read Luke's writing, you would have been amazed by what had just transpired. How does this guy who comes from one of the smallest countries and one of the smallest cities and one of the most obscure religious groups, one of the most despised populations, become a guy who has an audience, an opportunity to speak to the most powerful, influential, important, wealthiest people on the planet? There was no way that he worked that out on his own 
it was something that came as a consequence of him simply doing what you and I have to learn to do every day and just simply get up each morning and say, Lord, lead and direct my life in the paths that you want them to go down. It's not more complicated. It wasn't like Paul got saved and said, you know, I've got a grand plan for my life. Now, you may have done that. I've been guilty of that myself. But I found that none of my grand plans turned out to be that grand. In fact, they weren't that well planned. Most of them never came to pass. But then we turn around and find, how did we live our lives? And think about it in the terms of one day you'll come to the end of this earthly journey and maybe for a millisecond of time, God will allow us to look back on that journey and to come to this moment of realization that we accomplished far more than we ever imagined, <clears throat> that we had more impact than we could have dreamed. One thing <clears throat> I try to remember, remind people all the time is that there was one man who led Billy Graham to Jesus. In fact, he may have been the only man that that guy ever led to Christ, but what an impact Billy Graham life's had ever since. It's not how many you lead to Christ, the fact how God uses the ones that we do touch their lives. And I think, you know, one of the exciting things for me about heaven is getting, to, getting before the presence of the Lord and, and knowing everything and being able to see the network that God wove to bring me into the kingdom and to bring you and I as well into the kingdom. You know, I, it occurred to me not that long ago that when I was 12 years of age, my grandmother gave me my first Bible and the only Bible I had until I was a Christian and I didn't think much of it. It had my name in it and her name in it and all that. But one thing that I realized, I found out later on, is she had prayed for me to give my life to Christ for years. And for a long time, it didn't look like I was going to make it. And yet, in that moment when her prayers began to meld together with my wife's prayer, something powerful and spontaneous began to take place. So I say that when we look at Paul's life, it's easy to kind of go through it and not really grasp it. If we go to London, we'll see St. Paul's Cathedral as if Paul built this cathedral and put his name on it. I think he would be mortified today, not only because his name was on that building, but, but the kind of religion that takes place in that building. But that's a whole other story. But the bottom line is, we oftentimes miss real, the realization of how impactful your life is because we tend to look at all the shortcomings and failures and inadequacies and we forget that God says, well, it's not going to be by might and it's not going to be by strength, but it's going to be by my spirit. That God is going to do things by his spirit in your whole, wholly inadequate being that's going to redound for his glory and for your joy for all of eternity. And so I'm really looking forward to that because some of us are kind of half-cup people. We, all, we feel like we always see what we're short of and we don't realize what God is storing up for us, what God is accumulating for us on the other side of this journey. That's why sometimes I wish that our foresight was as good as our hindsight is. Because faith sees things but fear is often blinded and stumbling over issues that are probably ultimately non-consequential. But nevertheless, getting back to Paul, from this moment on, he would spend the next five years as a prisoner of Rome, first in Caesarea and then on a ship and then finally in Rome itself. And it's interesting because rather than moaning and complaining as I would do, 
as you probably would do, Paul said in writing to both the Ephesians and the Colossians, letters he wrote while he was in prison, that I have determined to redeem the time. That's the way the King James translates this interesting Greek word, exargazo. It's, it's kind of an interesting word because most modern translations use a whole phrase to express it. For example, Ephesians 5.16 says, making the most of every opportunity. In the Greek, it's just one word. And it's one word that's probably best uh, translate as redeeming the time. To the Colossians, he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity so that where we might see loss and we might see injustice and we might focus on disappointments, as we might feel like there are unforeseen troubles that shouldn't be in our life or facing dangers that we really don't want to have to face, what Paul saw was the will of God being fulfilled in his life. And that point of view is not just simply a psychological adjustment that we make, you know, the idea of, well, you just need to be positive. I, I, sometimes I get nauseated by those up with people kind of people, you know. You just got to be positive. You got to think positive. You just got to be up. I mean, the reality is, do they do that when they realize they have a very painful terminal case of cancer? Do they positively look at the fact that I'm dying and I'm going through suffering because of it? Because what it is is their positiveness is based upon their belief that everything's going to work out dandy. But what do you do when it's not going dandy? Well, you become depressed, discouraged, unhappy, maybe bitter, angry, resentful, unless, of course, you know that your life is hid in Christ. Unless you know, as the psalmist said, that I am in the center of the palm of his hand. That there is no kind of unforeseen circumstances. Oh, yes, there can be rebellion and disobedience that puts you in painful things. But God also foresaw you doing that and is already prepared not only to correct you, but to get you back where you belong. And when we have that kind of point of view, this understanding that God is ultimately in the control of my life from the moment I said, Jesus... You are my Lord and my master, and I surrender my life to you. From that very moment, he took that role, and he will not yield it even to you. And so as Paul is seeing his circumstances being in really one of the worst you could be, that his life is in the hands of a man, we'll talk a little bit more now in a moment, but a man who was a murderer, who was a, a horrendously cruel, wicked man who would do anything for money and pleasure, and had no value on human life. His life is in this man's hand. There's no justice that is going to come out of Felix's mouth. And yet Paul is not disturbed. Because as we talked about last week, as Jesus said to Pilate, you can be, do nothing to me but that which is given for, to you from heaven. And the more we anchor our life in that, the less troubled we're going to be when things are not unfolding the way we want them to do. And I would say that we live in a time and age where we begin to experience that on a higher level than maybe in past. For example, we, none of us would have thought you know, three or four years ago that we would have gone through all the things that we have gone through as a nation, everything from phodemics to plandemics to crazy things that have been put on us, and seeing a, a, a country become increasingly corrupt and embracing things of darkness that 
were not even mentionable short, a short while ago and now are being promoted as being a higher good. We've seen this complete reversal of dynamics in our world, and it's easy to become overwhelmed. It's easy for many Christians to get so weary of dealing with it, we just want to close our minds to it and pretend it's not there, which is the position that many churches and Christians are taking. Just ignore it. But the fact of the matter is, when we recognize that God is at work even in these situations, that over and over again, that things have to get really bad before people get repentant and broken. And that doesn't excite me, it doesn't pleasure me, but I recognize it's a reality that many times people will not bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ until they're forced to, and they can no longer bend their knee to anything else. That's why when Jesus said in Matthew 10, 18, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And they understood he wasn't saying that you're going to be invited to a grand banquet to share your message. No, he said you're going to stand on trial, be accused of evildoers because of your faith in me. <clears throat> and I want you to understand that's not odd or unusual, it's not a mark of failure, that is the consequence of following me. And so Paul writes that this was an opportunity that was given him. In Philippians 1.12, he says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chain, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. I mean, I love this. He says, not only has it given me an opportunity to tell people who would never otherwise get a chance to hear the gospel, to present it to them, to preach it in front of those who are interrogating me, to preach it to those who are holding me captive. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have been chained to Paul? I mean, they went through shifts, so it was only six hours a day. But my gosh, if you don't like what he's saying, where are you going to go? <laughs> it's just talking about a captive audience. Who's the real prisoner here? But he said, also the church, as they're seeing my confidence in God, my courage, my boldness, they are becoming bold. They are realizing that we can speak out and present the truth to those who want to hear it. Now, he went on to say, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. I mean, we see that with the high priest. We see it with the Jewish elders. We see it with this gentleman, Tertullus. And he said they preach Christ out of selfish ambition. In other words, they, they see the Gospels interfering with their goals. Not sincerely, but supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But then he adds, but what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, it really comes down to what ultimately is the greatest ambition of your life. If the greatest ambition of your life as a Christian is to make Christ known to people who are in your life and in your world, that they might have an opportunity to believe, then you don't get upset when you get the opportunity to speak, even if it isn't under the best situations. 
That when that person looks at you and says, what the blankety blank is wrong with you? And you say, well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> that you don't see those moments as being the moments which hinder the gospel, but rather the opportunity. Because there's something that Isaiah told, was told by the Lord in Isaiah 55. He said, my word will accomplish what it desires. In other words, when we speak God's word, it has an ability to penetrate lives and issues in ways that we had never anticipated. But there's something living and powerful in this two-edged sword of God's truth that is able to cut between every argument, situation, circumstance, and somehow touch the lives of people. That what is needed is not so much that we become very wise and diplomatic and careful in how we preach it, but that above and beyond all of that, which are good things, but it doesn't do any good unless we preach it. I remember years ago when the big argument in the church was, which translation is the one that God inspired? Uh, that's, a, that's a big conversation. But I used to try to cut through all the language and say, my biggest concern today as a Christian isn't which translation you're reading, is whether or not you're reading any translation at all. The bigger problem is people don't read their Bibles. <laughs> I may not, well, I can tell you which Bibles I think are good and which are not so good, and there's a few that I would say were just really bad. But the bottom line is most of them are safe and you can read them. And if you read them, you're going to hear pretty much what the Bible said in its original languages. The bigger danger is that people, Christians today, don't read it, churches don't teach it. And that's really where the problem lies. And I think the same thing is true when we talk about our testimony, when we sometimes say, well, I'm just waiting for the perfect opportunity to share Christ with this person. How do you know that there is another opportunity? Now, I, I get it. I, you don't want to be rude and assertive and, you know, basically get in people's face and act like the jerk that you are with everybody else. But the whole reality is that there's this awareness that now is the time of salvation. Now is the time. You may find this shocking, but the first time somebody tried to share Christ with me, I found it inconvenient. I was not interested in hearing it. I had other things to do. And if they continued and persist, then I knew that they were just a rude person. I didn't want any more. And yet, that was the one who, when I walked away, his words were stuck in my head to the point where I couldn't sleep. Well, in accordance with the Roman legal system, the prosecution would begin by leveling their charges against the defendant. Not that different from ours today. The NIV identifies Tertullus as an attorney, but in the Greek, it's, it's a, a different word, really. It's harotor, which we get our word rhetoric from. And it means somebody who's a professional speaker. He, he's trained in how to present something in an argumentative way. It wasn't something, it wasn't like he had legal training whatsoever. He had rhetorical training, and he'd learned the art of what's called sophistry. And sophistry is a term the Greeks used to describe a person who could persuade you to accept something, and it didn't matter whether it was true or not. They were just a good speaker, and they persuaded you to go along with them. Today, we have a different word. We call it politics. And, but bottom line is, it's, it's like these guys could make, you know, every, anything sound good. 
They could make it, make it sound reasonable. And that was the whole goal, that words were a tool to be manipulated because the Greek and the Roman world had come, as Pilate so well explained, not believing there was anything as absolute truth, just much like our culture today, that really it's all about winning. For the Roman world, it was about winning. It was never about being right or good or true. In other words, might is what made something right. Well, his job was not to present the facts or to state the truth, but to persuade by cleverly worded statements, and if necessary, even to make false statements. His job was not to seek the truth, but to rather seek a conviction. And so true to form, Tertullus launches into a series of untrue and unprovable statements. I love what William Barclay said about his opening comments of flattery. He says he called it nauseating flattery, every word of which he and Felix knew was quite untrue. As one historian noted, in fact, that the opposite of peace and reform was what was really the legacy or the history of, of Governor Felix. He writes, Felix's cruelty, coupled with his accessibility to bribes, in other words, he was easy to bribe, led to a great increase of crime in Judea. You know, you find that in any culture, that when people in authority don't respect the law, then lawlessness is the next consequence. When we see people in high positions of power who find ways of avoiding paying their taxes, I mean, a crazy thing like, say, you can do insider trading if you're a member of Congress and it's not illegal, but if you have a, a uh, food show on TV, you can go to prison for five years. The whole point is that when that happens in a society, you find that lawlessness becomes the role. People imitate what goes on, how people in power get away with what they get away with. He goes on to say that the period of his rule was marked by internal feuds and disturbances, which he put down with severity. In 58, Felix hired assassins to murder Jonathan, the high priest, and to open the door for the one who is now standing in front of him making accusations. He had the high priest assassinated. Tertullius then, with equal exaggeration, describes Paul as a troublemaker. <laughs> this word loimos in, in Greek, it means a pest. And it's the idea of some pestilence, the idea of some bug that bites you and spreads some disease, kind of like a, a COVID-19 person, you know, who just seems to multiply within the system and causes all sorts of difficulty. We might call him in their terms a heretical super spreader. Paul was a super spreader of the gospel. And I think that's actually a great term. I would love to be a super spreader of the gospel as well. Touch me and you get infected with Christ. But he goes on and he lists three what were condemnable activities in the eyes of the Romans, things that would lead to your execution. He accuses them, first of all, of stirring up riots. He's an agitator, the, the kind who continually inflames the easily influenced and excited population and foaming them up into rebellion. Well, the Romans were dealing with that kind of thing all the time because they were so oppressive in their rule. And so saying, this is one of those agitators, he's out there trying to stir the people in rebellion against Rome. The secondly, that he's a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. I mean, I, I get this picture in my mind of a guy with a leather vest with Nazarene on the back. You know, came riding in on a, you know, a donkey with 
with pipes, you know. It's just like... But basically, the Nazarene sect, and the term sect there means a heresy, a false teaching, a false doctrine, a, a theological lie. He's saying he's leading another one of these messianic movements, and they had to deal with these all the time. Guys who stood up and said, I am the Messiah, follow me. And who knows, from any place from a few to thousands would follow some of these individuals and lead to rebellions, and they had to be put down quite violently. At least that's how the Romans chose to do with it. And thirdly, he says he's, that he desecrated the temple. In other words, the desecration of the temple was really something that was more political in its implication than it was in even religious. Because the Roman governor and the Roman government functioned based upon the collaboration with the very priests who ran the temple. And as a consequence, they needed that political support. If the priest were to turn on them, or if the priest were to be overturned, then as a result, the Romans would find themselves no longer having a basis for public support. Now, here's one of the kind of the interesting ironies, is the same high priest, Ananias ben Lebedeus, is murdered by those who started the revolt against Rome in 66 AD. His days were numbered. Isn't it interesting? None of these people realize their days are numbered. Paul's response was both eloquent and short, at least as Luke recorded it. Essentially, he said to them, first of all, they can't prove any of these charges, almost like I dare them to. They have no witnesses. They have no substantiating evidence to anything they say. And if they do, let them produce it now. But secondly, he said, what they object to is my theology, which fits into the parameters of Je Jewish theology of the day. I follow the law and the prophets this is not a sect. This is not a heresy. And it's interesting that it is known, the Christians were known at that point in Judea, not as Christians, but they were known as the way. Based probably upon John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In other words, if you really want to have a true experience with God, follow Jesus. He is the way. And it's interesting, you think that wouldn't sell in a largely religious community, and yet it did because the more they endeavored to practice religious faith, the less they felt like they were on the way. The further they felt from God, the harder they tried to reach him, the more distant he became in their imaginations, in their mind, and more precisely in their own personal experience. And when Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to say things in a way that they had never heard, they said he speaks with authority. He's not like the rabbis who are going back and referencing somebody else. He speaks as if he knows God intimately and purposely and, perf and personally. But more important, there was power in what he said and it became evident in his power to heal and to do miracles. And people very real quickly began to realize he is the way. This is what we've been looking for. This is the path that we need to follow. And so amongst this growing movement within Judaism and in the land of Judea and Galilee and even into Samaria, they simply called it the way as opposed to everything else. He is the way. Well, like Pilate before him, Felix knew that, as it says in Matthew 27 about Pilate and Jesus, that out of envy they had handed him over. He understood that these men were base 
uh, politicos who had no real concern for good or evil or right or wrong. It was all about power and position. He understood that they felt threatened by Paul's influence that he had amongst the Jewish community as well as the Gentile community. And that's when Luke kind of in his story, I mean, keep in mind, Luke is in the room when all of this is happening. It's not like somebody who is hearing this years later. He is sitting in the room listening to the conversation. I, I mean, I, I can picture him there with his, with his laptop just, you know, recording everything that's going on here. Because we know that the book was written not too long after the very events that are recorded within it. You couldn't get closer to a moment in history than what we're reading right here. And he said that there were three fascinating details about how Felix responded to Paul. That first, it was monetary. With Felix, it was always first monetary. He was a man who was driven by an incredible amount of greed. It says he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. I mean, that's the way it worked in their system. You've been charged I've heard the charge. Now, do you want to get free? If you do, this much money. This is what it's going to cost you for me to grant you freedom. And that's how it worked. Secondly, Felix, it says, was well acquainted with the way. In other words, he'd been the governor there at this time six years. His wife was a Jewess, a woman by the name of Drusilla, who was actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who, as I mentioned last week, died in Caesarea in the very palace where this trial has taken place, being struck down by God because of his blasphemy. There was a degree of curiosity that was there. And keep in mind, curiosity doesn't seem like a great motivator in our day and age, but, I mean, to those of you who aren't aware of it, they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have Hulu, they didn't have Xbox, so they were always interesting in seeing and hearing and experiencing and be exposed to something that was out of the ordinary, something that would be entertaining. And so just sheer curiosity said, bring the guy in. His, I can hear his wife saying, you know, let me come with you. I want to listen to this guy and hear what he has to say. I've heard about this way. I've heard about Paul. I've heard about Jesus. I want to hear it for myself. Because even at that point, there was a very active church in Caesarea we read about that earlier in the book of Acts, that Philip the evangelist and his family were there, and there were even soldiers who had become Christians. And so as a result, this was a very interesting movement that was being talked about a great deal. Just sheer curiosity had to feed into their interest. But thirdly, Paul made reference in his presentation to the resurrection of the dead. Death is that thing that we all don't want to talk about or think about, but we can't help but doing so because we recognize it's on the calendar. You know, I don't care how young or old you are, someday the day of your death is on the calendar, and you and I fortunately don't know what that day is, but it will come on its own, and it will probably come far earlier than we had anticipated Unless, of course, you're talking to my father-in-law who's 99 going on 100 and he just wishes he could check out. You know, he, he's taken away any, any idea of living to a great old age has been disabused by conversations with him. He said, this is so boring. <laughs> Boy, I get it. I mean, how much Judge Judy can you watch? It's just like...
But we all know it's coming, and whether we admit it or not, we also fear it. And I say that because of what the writer of Hebrews said so clearly, so truly. He said that when Christ came and he sacrificed himself, he came to free those who the, through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We don't think about the fear of death as being a kind of enslavement. But it's amazing how people are driven by that. And, and I was watching this advertisement for a, a new uh, documentary uh, that's coming on about how to extend your life, how to live as long. He, the guy's trying out everything that you know fits into the rubric of longevity. And it's interesting because nobody wants to come out and say, we're terrified of having to die one day, so we're trying to do everything we can. You know, I mean, it's like a, I'm, I'm taking relief factor, I, I'm taking the new balance, what's that, fruit and balance thing or something, balance of nature, uh, I've even, I'm even rubbing my body with preparation H to try to shrink it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, we're trying all these kind of things to stave off the, the natural evidences of gravity. In our house, we just had, we were forced to it. We've gotten rid of all the mirrors. They just tell the truth, and I couldn't handle the truth anymore. <laughs> and we, so we want to live as if we're, you know, we kind of live as if we're going to live forever, and yet we know in the back of our mind we're not. And so when somebody says this, I have the answer to the fear of death that grips you all, that even Felix knew there's no way you can buy yourself out of death. It was too evident and again, I come back to saying, sitting in that very palace where the most powerful man in that country, even more powerful than Felix was in his day, died a horrible, writhing death in that same palace not too many years earlier. That reality is something that is terrifying and it's uncomfortable, but it is so critically essential. That's why it says that Felix sent from him frequently and talked with him and listened to him as he spoke about what? Getting out of jail? <laughs> no, he spoke with him about faith in Christ Jesus. He was redeeming the time. He was seizing the opportunity. If this guy wants to talk to me, I'm going to come in, but I'm not going to talk to him about some abstruse issue of Roman law or the injustice that's being done with me. I want to talk to you about faith in Christ Jesus. Yet over time, as Paul did this, Felix grew increasingly uncomfortable. It's pretty clear that Paul never softened or shadened his gospel message. He didn't try to present it in a user-friendly fashion in the way that so many today think they need to do. Because even though his life was in the hands of what we would call basically a sociopath and maybe could verge on the realm of being a, a psychopath, Instead, what Paul did is determined to fully explain to him what is required to gain the resurrection from the dead. And that began with faith in Christ alone. Now, it's hard for us in our age to really understand how ridiculous an assertion that was in the mind of the Greek and the Roman world. They had many gods. I remember when I used to go to India all the time and had chances to share the gospel with people who were native to that country. And it was amazing to me that you couldn't just tell them to believe in Jesus because everybody was willing to add Jesus to the pantheon. 
When you've got three million gods, one more god can't hurt. But when you said you have to forsake and renounce all other gods and worship him and him alone, then people really hesitated. Then they really struggled because they knew the implications. Not only what will happen to me spiritually when I tell the demons that I've been serving that they are no longer going to be the lords of my life, but what's going to happen with friends and families. And they knew what would happen. They would lose their job. They would be kicked out of their homes. Their, their marriages would be tra- ended. Their kids would be taken from them. All these negative things would happen to them. The moment they allowed themselves to be dipped into the water in baptism, they lost everything. I remember talking with one young Muslim boy who said that when I was baptized, my father took me and he tied me to a tree and he beat my back until it was nothing but shreds of flesh and blood and sinew. And then he took handfuls of salt and rubbed them into my back and then he left me there to die. (laughs) And fortunately, by God's grace, he was able to get loose and escape. But he knew if I ever go back to my village, they will kill me. So I know that when Paul said, you know, faith in Christ alone, it's, 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 it's beyond the, the, the concept that we have in our culture where people might not want to be your buddy anymore. They may not want to hang out with you anymore. They may, it may even have implications on what goes on in the workplace. But the simple fact that you said faith in Christ alone, that was a high bar, a really, really high bar. He knew, Felix knew, that's the end of my career That's the end of not only his career, but his lifestyle because Paul kept on driving the point on. He said it's about righteousness. Righteousness means the condition of being acceptable to God. That a man is righteous when his life is being lived in agreement with what God says your life should be. That we look at the commandments of God and we bring ourselves into agreement with his word. That's what righteousness in a biblical statement is because it's not something we attain as much as it's something that is bestowed upon us when we come to him with three critical steps. That first of all, we must repent. And repentance means, the Greek word metanoia means a change of mind. That suddenly I look at my life and say, I have been living my life in the wrong way. I'm now going to follow Christ in this new way. It's a total change of perspective. Not just simply as we change our mind about things. Yeah, I'll take the ice cream with the chocolate. No, I think instead this week I'll have raspberry. I changed my mind. No. (laughs) It's that kind of change of mind where we say, instead of eating the chocolate with raspberry and chips and all the goodies on it, I'm going to forsake ice cream altogether. It's a complete change. I, I can no longer eat that food. It's not healthy for me. Can I have yours? But you understand my point? It's it's this radical shift that suddenly I see my life in this world through a completely different lens. That I need to confess my sin, to acknowledge that I have lived in a way that's contrary to the will of God and the way of God and the personality of God. And then I need to absolutely surrender to Christ as my Savior, my Lord, and my Master. Again, we have trouble grasping the Roman mindset because the Romans took pride in being proud. You know, you get the you see the statues, or even even El Duce when he ruled over Italy during World War II would always walk around, you know, very proud, head up, you know, just kind of 
effusing arrogance. You have to understand that in that cultural context, that's what you want to aspire to. Christianity was rejected because it was a religion of weakness. It was a, to admit that you have sinned, to admit that you've made mistakes, to admit that you're wrong, to say yourself that you're a servant, and even worse, that you have become enslaved to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There could be nothing diametric to the mindset of the culture. And I say that because oftentimes people say, well, you just, you know, when you have a culture that's not open to the gospel, you've got to be really subtle, and, and it's that subtlety that becomes so subtle that they never get it. I call it stealth evangelism. You get them converted before they knew what hit them. It's a nacho baptism, right? You take the pan, you push their face in it. It doesn't, and they look up and say, I still believe in science. These are the kind of things that, that we buy into as if somehow we just have to kind of slowly sneak up to people and say, hey, the first one's free. No, it's saying... Jesus wants you and he wants all of you. He doesn't want just part of you. He doesn't want moments of your life. He wants you. So that Paul would write to the Colossians to say, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there was self-control. Thirdly. And this was a tough one because Felix had... Uh, divorced his first wife, said he might marry Jerusalem, and she, he seduced her away from her husband. In fact, William Barclay writes about it saying, Felix, with the help of a magician named Adamos, had seduced Drusilla from her husband and persuaded her to marry him. So he used witchcraft to get her to follow after him. And essentially, when we talk about self-control, it means that you cannot live a practiced, habitual consistent, willful, and sinfully disobedient life, and at the same time claim to be a follower of Jesus. See, for Felix, his greed, his sexual immorality, his murderous violence, his arrogance, ran counter to the high moral demands of a holy God and the holiness of the cross. Now, most of us assume that that's what you're going to do, but again, you're talking about a man who is making career and personal suicide at this moment. And fourthly, he said he talked to him about the judgment to come, that if he did not repent, that Felix understood from talking to Paul that there are two eternal destinations after death. One is heaven and the other is hell. And hell holds its endless eternal torment. And that's ultimately the choice that you will make at death. It may have been shortly after this that Felix stopped talking to Paul because we read Felix was afraid. <laughs> Interesting word here that literally it means to be alarmed, terrifying, and trembling with fear. This talk of eternal judgment to come left him terrified, mainly because he had an incredibly guilty conscience. And that's why he said, you may leave, and when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Have you ever noticed in those situations that convenient never comes? It's the reason why in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation. 
As sometimes I've, I, as I've been talking to people about the gospel and saying, well, you know, I want to think about it. I don't know. That's interesting, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I kind of, <laughs> what I'll say to a person many times is, you know, the Bible, before I talk to you, you may have known nothing about Christianity or the gospel or how to get saved. I, I get that. And it would be unfair for God to condemn you without having any knowledge, but I just ruined that for you. I've just laid out to you what God requires, what he expects of you. And if you go away from here rejecting him, then you are left with no excuse. You can't say, well, nobody told No, you've been told. I've just ruined that for you. Is that my perverse nature that enjoys that moment? <laughs> but you see, there has to be a level of discomfort. We have this concept, again, in our culture that we need to present the gospel in a way that's so smooth and easy and comfortable that people don't have to really go through any kind of huge transitional experience. And yet, when you talk about somebody being born again, there's nothing more dramatic than conception. <laughs> There's nothing more dramatic than gestation in the womb. There's nothing more dramatic than that baby coming out of the womb into the world. That is a dramatic moment in a person's life. And we recognize it has changed everything, not only for the fetus, the baby, the child, whatever you want to call it, but it changes everything for everybody else in their life as well. It's dramatic. So when I tell a person, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, I'm saying to them, this is a life-defining, life-changing, earth-shattering dynamic that will alter everything in your life and yet at the same time may not necessarily alter anything. You may go to the same job, feel, live the same career, do everything you do, but somehow everything about you is going to be different and you're going to see everything through a completely different lens. And you start responding to things with a completely different attitude and heart. And you're going to feel guilty about things that you once never felt guilty about. And you're going to take joy in things that you once didn't enjoy. Something, you know, crazy. You could find yourself, say, how weird can we get? Say, you find yourself on a beautiful Sunday morning sitting in a room with a bunch of other people listening to some windbag drone on and on and on. <laughs> and going away and going, God spoke to me today. I mean, that, that, that's such a profound thing. And we have to understand that we're asking people to give up everything in order to find the real thing. <clears throat> As I said before, that none of us really see what's coming next or the pace of events. But it was shortly after Felix rejected the gospel that his earthly circumstances changed dramatically as well. At that same time, a violent riot broke out between the Greeks and the Jews. The Jews said, Caesarea is a Jewish city. The Greeks said, it is a Greek city, a Roman city. The Jews wanted to impose religious law, the Greeks we're going to have no part of it because their bathhouses and brothels and affairs and all this stuff. That was all part of their culture that they celebrated. The city broke out into riot, and shortly afterwards, we find that Felix sent his troops into the crowds and defended the Greeks against the Jews. He murdered thousands of the citizens of the city were killed, murdered by, by the Roman soldiers. 
And then he set his soldiers loose and they plundered the homes of all the wealthiest Jews in the city. <clears throat> when word got to Rome, he was recalled. And it was only through the influence of his brother, who was a close friend of Emperor Nero. And I just have to leave it to your imagination to think about what kind of a person would be a close friend of Emperor Nero. But his life was spared. But afterwards, he simply fades into history. The only thing we know about is that many of his descendants were destroyed in the explosion of Vesuvius and the burying of Pompeii. And so he and his seed disappear from history. But as I was sat at the end of my preparation yesterday and I was thinking about this, a psalm came to my mind. And I, it came to my mind because oftentimes I think what we do is we look at people who are successful, rich, prosperous, people who are you know, maybe playing by all the rule, wrong rules, but they seem to be winning. And we kind of despair. And, I, and suddenly it came to my mind Psalm 73, and I, I read it in various versions. I finally settled on the New Living Translation. It reads like this. I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their heart could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. Does the Most High even know what is happening? Is there even a God? And if he is, does he care? He then says, look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly transgender ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. I was envious until I considered their destiny, where they're going to end up. 